to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together. Thank you for what you plan to say to our hearts in this study today. Lord, I pray that you would speak and that I would not. Rather, let my words be your words. And Lord, I pray that as your word goes forth, it would accomplish the purpose for which it was sent in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 13 through 17 all occur on the night of the Last Supper. And John begins by remembering how Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Actually, he's the only gospel writer who tells us about the event. And so from that, we know that this act really had to have affected John deeply. It may have been the very thing that changed him from being a self-serving man with an explosive temperament to being a disciple who became renowned for his focus on love and selfless service. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In those days, people lay down on their sides to eat, propped up on their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand. And that meant that the person next to you lay between your legs and the table and they had their head very close to your chest. The lowest servant or slave in the household was given the task of washing the guests' feet as they arrived because as people reclined at the dinner table, there was a real need for feet to be clean from the dirty roads. Jesus knew that his disciples would betray him, deny him and abandon him. And yet knowing all of that, verse 1 tells us that Jesus loved them to the end. Despite the fact that he is the king of glory, Jesus bent down to wash them from the dirt of their journey. Knowing his time was short, Jesus was teaching his disciples a lesson that they would not forget. And he used this very purposeful act of service to express his love for them. Now, don't miss that verse 2 tells us that Judas had already decided to betray Jesus. And though he knew Judas's heart, the Lord even washed his feet. Jesus was willing to serve those who didn't love him back. And the question is, are we willing to serve those who don't love us back? 
Jesus served them modeling absolute humility. Now, often we have a mistaken view of what humility really is. We think that someone who is humble should always belittle themselves and make themselves out as if they're nothing. But true biblical humility is not a case of thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's about not thinking of yourself at all. Look at what we're told here of Jesus in verse 3 and 4. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus knew that he had been given all authority. He also knew where he'd come from and where he was going. Do you see? So he got up and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus did not act because he thought less of himself. Rather, he served with no thought for himself because he was well aware of his privileged position. In a similar way, if we know who we are in Christ, when we understand that he has given us all authority and an inheritance kept for us that can never perish, spoil or fade, it really frees us not to strut about arrogantly, but rather it frees us to serve others with no thought for ourselves. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So there's a lot of symbolism in this. Christ wants to cleanse each one of us from the dirt of our journey too. Yet, That's often very difficult for self-sufficient people to accept. Look at Peter's reaction. It was so difficult for him to let go of his control of the situation. You know, this passage always reminds me of when my husband and I lived in Botswana. We went with some friends to the bush to a place called the Mkharakhari Pans. The area was a beautiful place, but it was very hot and dusty when we were there. Late one afternoon, we decided to play a game of soccer in the dust, but it didn't last long because we got too hot. And so we went back to sit in the chairs back at the campsite. We'd not been sitting long when my husband came over and without a word, he filled a basin of water and began to go around the circle, washing the dust off each person's feet. It was so moving and it taught us a lesson we'll never forget. You would have thought that the hard part was for the person washing people's feet. 
but surprisingly, it was harder for us to let our feet be washed. We were uncomfortable and our eyes were more on ourselves than they were on the foot washer. Like Peter, we found it hard to receive because our pride got in the way. Jesus told him a spiritual truth in verse 8, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, without the cleansing that only Christ can give, there is no fellowship with God. Of course, Peter, who's never been shy to tell Jesus what to do, says, Okay, then wash everything. And Jesus has to go on to tell him, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. In the Old Testament, the priests who served at the temple had to be washed from head to toe when they first came into God's service. But then as they continued their work there, they needed only to cleanse their feet and their hands to remain clean. The disciples, having already believed in Christ, were cleansed. But this foot washing is a symbol of the fact that Jesus alone can cleanse us. And more than that, he is also the only one who can keep us clean day to day. Jesus knows, though, that not all of those present are really clean, for not all have believed. And Jesus knows that Judas will soon betray him. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus was their teacher, and yet with no thought for himself, he washed their feet. And knowing that no servant is greater than his master, he calls us to serve others in the same way. You and me are called to a life of servant leadership, which means that we are to willingly serve others with no thought for ourselves or our own advantage. We are not to act as if we're more important than others. Rather, we should be willing to take even the lowest job to show love for others just as Christ did. In verse 17, Jesus said that those who do what he says will be blessed. And then he goes on to reveal his betrayer. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Remember back in John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus had said that not all his disciples had believed in him. And then he went on in John 6, 70 to say that one of them was working hand in hand with the devil. Judas had never believed in Jesus. It's shocking to realize that someone who was so near to Christ 
for so long could be so far from him spiritually. In verse 18, Jesus said someone at their table would betray him and that this would fulfill prophecy. He quotes from Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 that the anointed one would be betrayed by someone very close to him. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testify, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. You see, the disciples were confused. They were at a loss to know which of them he meant. You see that up until that point, None of them had ever suspected that Judas was the way he was. Verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So remember, as they lay down to eat, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is John himself. And so it's John who has his head near Christ's chest. And I can just imagine the scene, can't you? Peter is sitting further away, and so he gestures to John. Psst, hey, hey, John, John, ask Jesus who he's talking about, will you? And so John leans back and quietly asks the Lord who it is. Jesus then whispers to John, I'll show you. It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now, it's important to understand that this action of dipping the bread and passing it to Judas would have been seen by the others as being an act of love and honor. It seems that only John knows what it really means, and he's so shocked that he just sits there silently. The others think that Jesus is entrusting some special task to Judas, as he was the one in charge of their money. The disciples did not suspect Judas. That was how good his mask was. But Jesus knew his heart. And it was night. Night is the time when work stops, just as Christ's work is about to stop. But here, night is also a time of spiritual darkness. Once Judas has gone, we're told, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. 
My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Though John does not specifically mention it, other gospel writers tell us that it is at this time that Jesus introduces communion, using the Passover cup of redemption to symbolize his blood on the cross and by using the unleavened bread of the feast to symbolize his sinless body broken on our behalf, he established a symbolic remembrance meal for all of those who claim him as their substitute. Again, Jesus focused on his glorification rather than upon the suffering he must now face. And out of love for them as his children, he tried to prepare them for what lay ahead, telling them that for now they cannot follow him to where he is going. And he gives them and us his command to love one another because it is by our love for one another, that everyone will know that we are his disciples. I honestly don't know if Peter really heard Christ's command about love at that moment, because his mind is still very obviously focused on the fact that Jesus had just said he was going somewhere that they couldn't go. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now but you will follow later. Clearly, Jesus is speaking about the fact that he's going to die, and after that, he will rise again and ultimately return to heaven. And he says, although Peter will not be able to follow him immediately, one day he will be in Christ's presence again. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do you see how self-assured Peter is? He thinks so highly of himself, and that will lead to Peter's failure in the end. Jesus knows Peter's weakness from the very beginning. He knows that he will deny him, but Jesus also knows Peter's heart. Peter is not calculating like Judas. Judas's sin was planned out. It was deliberate. But Peter's sin would be the result of his impulsiveness. Peter re would repent for what he did. And the whole event would ultimately be used for Peter's good. Jesus knows what Peter will one day become. I'm sure that right now, Peter would never have believed that he would deny Christ. Not me, Lord. Surely not. I'm your best disciple, not your worst. But Peter's pride is about to be broken. He is about to be humbled so that God can use him in a powerful way for his kingdom. Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus, and the rest of Christ's disciples are about to be scattered. Christ knew the events that lay ahead, and he knew that the disciples would be very troubled by them. And so he seeks to reassure them, 
commanding each of the eleven in John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus begins instructing them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the word that Jesus uses there for troubled gives the idea of water being stirred up by the wind. And I think all of us know what it's like to feel that way at times when we have no rest. Jesus says that the antidote to turmoil, the way that you still those waves within, is commitment to God and a commitment to him. For even as we face great hardship, when we face things that are unexplained, we know that we belong to him and he can be trusted. There's far more to life than what happens in the here and now. Jesus speaks of his father's house and in that he means heaven. And he says that his father's house has many rooms. You and me need not worry that there won't be enough to go around. Jesus is going ahead to prepare a very special place for each one of us. And one day he will return for us and we will be with him where he is. What Jesus is doing here is he's drawing from the marriage customs of those days that everyone would have been familiar with. In that culture, once a bridegroom and a bride had been pledged to each other in marriage, after visiting the bride's home to finalize the agreement, the groom would then return to his father's house to prepare a place for himself and his bride to live. Later on, when the groom's father thought that everything was ready, the father would command his son to return for the bride who had been promised him. Once the groom had collected his bride, they would then travel back to the father's house together and there they would have a marriage supper before their union was finally consummated. Jesus was using what they knew about that custom to illustrate a spiritual truth. Though he will depart, he will return for his bride, the church and that ultimately we will be with him in the Father's house, and there's plenty of space. All will be prepared. Obviously, Thomas doesn't doubt here. In fact, he's very eager to get there, and he wants to make sure that they know the way, to which Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you think about it, the bride only gets to the father's house because of the bridegroom. She depends on him to get her there. And this is Jesus' sixth great I am statement 
that comes in the Gospel of John. And notice, he is the way. He does not merely point to the way. He is the truth. He doesn't merely speak the truth. And not only that, he is the life. In other words, he is the zoe in Greek, meaning that he is the absolute fullness of life that comes from God. Like the single door for the sheep, He is the only way, for he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter understood this because later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of Christ Jesus, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the one and only way to get to God the Father. In John 14, 7, Jesus then says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you know Jesus, you know God the Father, because Jesus is God in the flesh. As Paul would say in Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Philip seems confused though, and uh, saying in verse 8 of John 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus reminds Philip that they've been together a long time, and he expects that Philip understands that Jesus is no ordinary man, because in Christ, Philip has encountered God himself. At the very least, what Jesus is able to do proves that he is operating in the full power of God. And he goes on to say, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So Jesus begins here by saying very truly. So what follows is unquestionably true. When Jesus says that they will do even greater things than these, he doesn't refer to greater in quality, but rather in quantity and in reach. In other words, they're going to do far more than he has done. And if you read the book of Acts and study all that the Holy Spirit did through the apostles, you'll see that that is certainly true. Because as the disciples carried the gospel to the world, as they prayed in Christ's name, which really is another way of saying prayed in agreement with Christ's will, again and again, the miracles happened and God answered their prayers. 
Because, of course, the works that believers do in Christ's name are not done in their own power, but rather it is done by the power of the Holy Spirit who is working through them. Let's leave it there and uh, we'll pick it up next time. Father, thank you so much that you call us to a life of love, for it is by this love others will know that we are truly your disciples. Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Help us to act as you did, servants of others, to the glory of God's name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.